Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear R.J. Walker. I was like, this is probably the most fucked up thing I've ever read in my whole life. And I, I watched a lot of weird porn, and this is the most fucked up thing. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I want to take a minute to tell you about another podcast you want to check out. It's Off the Cuffs. It's a kink and BDSM podcast, conversational-style podcast for those in the kink and BDSM lifestyle, or those who are just curious to know about it each week the host dick wound (laughs) and minimus maximus i mean come on if one of those is named dick wound you're gonna at least want to check it out right they're joined by guests to discuss their personal journey in the world of kink it's educational personal it gives everyone who wishes to express themselves a voice and a platform to do so i kevin allison I'm on episode 39. Uh, that episode is called Hand Jobs for the Homeless. I guess I told that story that I've chosen never to tell on risk, as I'm now reminded reading this copy. So if you want to hear about me giving a hand job to a homeless person, oh my goodness, why not check out my episode of Off the Cuffs? It's available on iTunes podcast addict stitcher and most other players or their episodes are streamable on off the cuffs.us you can also follow them on twitter at ocp kink ocp kink all right there you go also i want to give a big shout out to two of our nudist nudist Well, I don't know that much about them, but they are two of our newest Patreon patrons, Allison Garber and Betsy Cadell. 
Or maybe it's Cadle. You never know when a Cadel might be a Cadle. But we want to thank both of those ladies from the bottom of our heart for being $25 or more Patreon patrons. If you go to patreon.com slash risk, you too can become a patron of ours and get access to all sorts of new bonus content. I just put a new bonus story on the Patreon page just now. Uh, so a, a story that you can't hear on the free podcast feed, uh, but it's a fantastic story that you can hear there if you're a patron. There's all kinds of other bonus content there and uh, chances to win prizes, all kinds of stuff. It, it's a great way to help us keep this running because God knows <laughs> we need your support. It takes a lot to keep all of this running. And we really do pour our heart and soul into it. And we really do greatly love and appreciate the uh, help that our fans give us the pitching in to keep this whole thing up and going. All right. That is all I have to say. Go to patreon.com slash risk and become a patron for a dollar a month, $5 a month, 10 or like Allison and Betsy, $25 or more. Did you see someone put on Twitter? Someone named at Taylor Imagine said, how much do I have to give to Patreon to get a nude pic of Kevin Allison? I don't know how to respond to that. Then again, I'm a little surprised you can't just Google my name and in the image search, I'm <laughs> I would think it's mostly nude shit at this point. <laughs> All right. So anyway, nudie pics or not, Please give to our Patreon. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Hurley Mower behind me now. I'm just guessing at everyone's name pronunciation today. We're calling this week's episode Great Pretenders. These are three stories where identities and questions about them become very important to the story. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Devin McNichol, who shared her story at the Last Risk Live show in Carborough, North Carolina. Devin was brand new, brand spanking new. She she was a fan of the podcast who heard, you know, at the end of every episode, we list where we're coming next live and tell you what the themes of those shows are going to be. And then we tell you, hey, if you're in that town... Please pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions, and we work with people on their stories. So Devin is a perfect example of that, someone who had never gotten on stage before to tell a story like that. 
But she wrote in to us because she heard me at the end of some episode saying, hey, we're coming to Carborough, so pitch us. Before Devin, we're going to hear from R.J. Walker, who has been on the show before. Very talented writer, poet, a very unique voice. I highly encourage you go check out R.J.'s stuff at rjwalker.bandcamp.com. Does a lot of spoken word. You can find him on Facebook, R.J. Walker Spoken Word as well. And he told this one at our last Risk Live show in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're coming back to Salt Lake, by the way. But I'll talk about that at the end of the episode. Here he is now. This is R.J. Walker at the uh, Risk Live show in Salt Lake City with a story we call The Prodigal Son. So, uh, the story starts with my mom being pregnant as a teenager. That's not an easy thing to do in, like, the 80s in Utah when you're Mormon. So, she prayed to the Lord, baby Jesus. Lord, baby Jesus, what do I do? And uh, Lord, baby Jesus says, put it up for adoption. Uh, So, my mom has a closed adoption for her first child, does not tell my dad, who was really planning on being a father. It's like, yep, I'm going to drop out of college, got my career set, we're going to get a place. And then when the baby was finally delivered, he didn't even get to see his first child because the closed adoption people took it before he could even hold it. So he was pretty upset (laughs) about that. And so they decided to have another one, which was my older sister. But then they decided, this one's a girl. The other one was a boy. We're going to need to fix that. So they had one of the earliest in vitro fertilization treatments, which helped increase the odds of getting one gender over the other. And that was my stupid ass. Um, I'm a test tube baby, one of the earliest ones. And they had me as the replacement of the child that was lost. My mom was hoping this story would be very inspirational to me um, when I came home from my Mormon mission early and said I did not want to go back. I came home for mental health reasons and my mom didn't believe that I had depression or anything like that because, I mean, demons are real, but depression? Nah, they made that up. Uh, So... Yeah, uh, and after that whole story, this whole, like, you were the chosen one story, I said I wasn't going back on my mission, and she called me the Antichrist and disowned me. I was homeless for a period of a couple of weeks, but I got a job, I got back on my feet, I got a place to stay, everything, and then, years later, like 2014, I get a call from my dad, and he says, you'll never believe it. Turns out, the adopted baby got in contact with his birth parents and wanted to meet with the family. And I was like, oh, I hate family gatherings. How can I not go to this? Uh, It's not very good. 
my family gatherings, it's like, you know, I could have done other things with my afternoon other than listen to people be racist. So I, I end up going because I'm like, this is too absurd and surreal and serendipitous to miss out on. I have to go just to experience this whole nonsense. And we get there, and nobody saw it coming, but this guy, my long-lost brother, brought an entire professional film crew. I thought the news was here to shoot him meeting his birth parents. And I'm like, KSL's got a lot of fluff stories, but this is an oddly specific fluff story. Uh, And we get there. He's dressed in this, like, douchey polo. You know, the guys who wear polos and work out a lot and are really tan, but, like, fake tan? That was him. And he had his wife and his multiple kids... And he was the perfect, clean-shaven, non-tattooed, brilliant, shining little boy that was like 30, uh, that he could have possibly been. Yeah, he goes on to tell us what he's been up to with his life. Uh, He's, you know, the leader of the young men's group, like I probably should have been. He went on his two-year mission. He graduated from BYU-Hawaii with his business degree. And also, he's a fucking billionaire. He's a motherfucking billionaire. He hired this film crew to come in and film this shit so that he could post about it to all of his billionaire friends, I guess. And he owns a jet and multiple Porsches, a Tesla. He owns a couple of airplanes. He named his son Jet. I think that's fucked up. But that's what billionaires fucking do. Uh, He lives on a mountain, which he owns, in Layton. You know the people that live on the top of the mountains? There's like, is that a road or is that just a long, long driveway? Those driveways are his. Those like mile-long driveways that snake up the canyon. And on his mountain house cabin thing, he has a deck for the exclusive purpose of hitting golf balls off of the deck and into the lake below at the bottom of the mountain because that's what rich people fucking do. <laughs> and I don't, I don't understand it at all. And he tells us his entire story, how he made his money. Now, I'm sure you remember in like the mid to late 2000s, there were those companies that would like edit all the bad parts out of movies uh, so that Mormons could watch. Yeah, y'all are like, yeah, clean flicks. Uh, yeah, you remember those? He started that. Uh, and it was highly profitable. He made a lot of money editing the bad parts out of Gladiator because Mormons like the part where Russell Crowe fights people, but not the part where Russell Crowe has sex with people. So, yeah, so he started that whole trend and it made so much money. But here's the thing about that here's why you don't see him all over the place still it's super illegal to modify copyrighted footage and resell it. That's illegal. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. And then, you know, he gives everybody the hug. You know, I'm brooding in the corner, like, I've been disowned from this family. I don't know why I'm here. And he comes up to me and he's like, I've always wanted to have a brother. And after that moment, he called me bro. And I was like, I don't know if I hate or am supposed to love this, but right now, this feels weird. Bro? God, this isn't a Gold's Gym. (laughs) 
after he says his goodbyes, he stays in contact with my family, and he sends group texts to all of the family members, uh, photos of him doing things with my dad. And my dad is very poor. He had some trouble with a con artist and like lost all of his money and had to move back in with grandma. You know, he's been putting everything back together ever since. But he takes my dad to these like really nice sort of like salons and he gets in the full spa treatment and he goes to the expensive clothing store and he buys him these expensive clothes, brand new cowboy boots, hundreds of dollars worth of clothes. And he texts these photos to everybody. Dad's looking good, right? And I'm like, huh. I'm a piece of shit, son. Uh, like when, when I see this, and he does the same thing with my mom. He's like, mom's going to the spa today at this expensive golf course and all these like fancy resorts he's taking my parents to, texting us photos. And then finally, he tries to get in contact with me. And he's like, hey there, bro. Why don't we go somewhere, you know? And I don't want to be the kind of guy that's like, yeah, let's do the most expensive thing possible because I'm sure that's what he expects. I'm like, no, I'm going to throw this guy for a loop. Like, we're going to go to the greenhouse effect, this coffee shop where smelly hippies go that's by my house where I run the open mic. And we get there. I brought my girlfriend at the time along so that she could be witness to this absurdity because I'm like, nobody's going to fucking believe me that this guy is real. Uh, They're going to think I'm just making this up. I'm a professional poet. Making things up is like what I do as a job. (laughs) Nobody's going to believe me. (laughs) Poets lie all the time. Uh, So, yeah, we get there and he starts saying, you know what? I know that you're the black sheep of the family. And I'm like, yep. And he's like, but I think it's totally fine that you've moved on from the religion, you know, and I support everybody regardless of what their religion is. And he gives me this like half an hour long pitch of all of the things he thinks I would like to hear. And I'm like, I would like to hear that. But this all seems very disingenuous because 100% of the things you are saying I am liking. And that makes me not trust anyone. It's like you have to say something that's shitty in order for me to trust you. Otherwise, you're selling me something. And if my hunch that nobody gets that rich by not being a douchebag is correct, this guy was the biggest douchebag. He gives me a book called Think and Grow Rich. And he's like, I know you like literature. I think if you read this, it'll change your life. (laughs) Yeah, I read one sentence and threw it over my shoulder and yelled, this is capitalist bullshit! And that's the story of that book. But I Googled him. I'm like, this guy is so suspicious. I Googled him. So like I said, clean flicks, super illegal. The lawsuits started piling up on all of these, especially his clean movie companies. And he hid them. And then right before 2008, right before the big crash, he sold the company for a lot of money. Now on paper... The company looked extremely profitable. But as soon as it was sold and all the lawsuits burst forth like water from the levee, it went immediately under. This is a crime called securities fraud. And it's bad. (laughs) Honestly, like rich people are like, oh yeah, fuck over poor people, that's fine. But when you fuck over other rich people, then like shit gets real uh, (laughs) for you. Then it's real white collar crime. So, so yeah, uh, I Google him, and the first things I see on top of Google is all of the videos he took of meeting his birth family, 
all of the photos with my dad, all of his blog posts about meeting his birth family, all of the good charity work he is doing, as well as his new company, Silverleaf Financial, a debt buying company. I'll tell you about Silverleaf in a second, because after those lawsuits came, he was able to basically buy his way out of his securities fraud lawsuit and just like pay the fine cheaper that way and then just move on, started Silverleaf Financial. And the next thing after all the photos of my family was Silverleaf Financial, your debt buying solution. And I'm like, really? So I looked it up. When banks go under and you have a loan with them, your loan doesn't just go away. I learned this. I'm not fiscally responsible, but I learned that. (laughs) And what happens is these debt buying companies buy your loan. And what he was doing was he was buying loans with adjustable rates and then jacking up the interest and taking people's houses and putting them on the street. That's fucked up. And not especially illegal, I guess, because they're poor people. Um, but still, he was part of the stock market crash problem that fucked over everyone. I was like, this is probably the most fucked up thing I've ever read in my whole life. And I, I watched a lot of weird porn, and this is the most fucked up thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I've watched a lot of animated porn, and this is the most fucked up thing. So yeah, this was insane. And then at the very, very bottom, if you press like the I'm feeling lucky basically on Google, then you might see all of the illegal fucked up shit him and Silverleaf Financial are doing. I realized that he didn't care about my family. He cared about the publicity so that he could put these things on the internet and then bury all of his bad publicity by basically buying it to the top of the search so that he looked very good and people would still deal with him even though he had this sketchy history. I call my family and I'm like, don't trust this guy. This guy's fucked up. He does all these fucked up things. And I told them the whole thing I discovered. And my dad was like, you know, that's all in his past and people can change. I always wasn't an angel. And my mom was like, you know, I heard this story and it's really great to see somebody repent and move on. And nobody believed me. Nobody believed me that this guy was fucked the fuck fucking up. And I was like, really, like, my chest just collapsed. I'm like, listen, I know y'all don't like me that much, but I'd rather you not suffer through whatever bullshit this guy is planning. My family starts talking about the things I'm saying to this guy. I guess I haven't named him. I'll call him Chad. I guys like this are always named Chad. Uh, so I'm sorry, Chads. Is there any Chads? I'm sorry, Chad. Uh, so my family tells him, and he's like, oh, yeah, he's always making stuff up. Those writers, you know, those poets are making things up. He's such an imagination. Beautiful child. Um, but his wife hears this, and then his wife gets my number and calls me and says, everything you're saying about him is absolutely true. He's been gaslighting me for years. He did the same thing to my family. He bought them off. He spoiled them. So that when I said he was doing these fucked up things, that he had all these lawsuits, that the FBI wanted him, they wouldn't believe me. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm not fucking awful and crazy. I have somebody to confide in, you know? And and I told her, 
The first thing I said was, I believe you, which is exactly what I wanted to hear. And later, a couple days later, I get another phone call from her. And she says, Chad took a knife and declared that an angel came to him. And he said that he was Abraham. And he said that I was Sarah. And he said that our son was Isaac, Jed. And then after he said this, I immediately went to call the police. But he grabbed me and he said, I have to do this. This will make everything better. And he locked her outside of the house and she called the police. And the police came, arrested him, but he bailed himself out. I'm sure he was thinking as the lawsuits were piling up against him from his multiple white collar crimes and fucked up shit that somehow this would make everything go away. This religion is the last thing you turn to. It would make it all go away. But obviously, that's not how it fucking works. No angel's going to show up and be like, oh yeah, thanks for almost killing your son right before he stabs him. That's not how this works. And then I'm like, we have to do something. I have to warn my family. My family still doesn't believe me. The day my family finally believed me, I get a text from my dad and it says, he won't stop the car, call the police. And I'm like, holy fuck. My dad's been kidnapped by a billionaire criminal. (laughs) This is absurd, this isn't real. I can't even write poems about this, it's so absurd. I write poems about toilets joining me in bed. (laughs) This is too real to be absurd like that. I call the police. My dad texted me, fortunately, Chad bought him an iPhone 6, and Apple lets you track their phones pretty easy. So the police tracked the phone, and by police, I mean the FBI, because Chad had a warrant out for his arrest still, and they tracked it to southern Utah, just outside of St. George, where Chad got stopped, and then Chad got arrested, and my dad convinced the police to let him drive Chad's bazillion-dollar Mercedes SUV, you know, the the weird ones that everybody puts a snorkel on, those Mercedes SUVs, to drive it back to Salt Lake City. And after that, my parents believed me, and that meant so much that they believed me about this guy. They didn't believe me about having depression. They didn't believe me about anxiety or insomnia or why I didn't want to be part of the church, but they believed me about this, finally. And I'm sorry that it took my dad being kidnapped for it to happen. Chad was taken to prison. He sends letters to my mom. Not exactly true. It's more like he sends poems to my mom. And he started one of them with, you know, I'm not much of a writer. I wish I could be more of a poet like RJ. Thank you. I'm RJ Walker. Well, I don't believe it. It's Henry Bascom, my next door neighbor. Hey, come on, get involved till the mystery is solved. Hang around for Scooby-Doo.
Grimsley. Why, it's Zeb and Zeke. It's Lenny the Cook. Captain Eddie. Mr. Madness. It's Julie. He's Harry the Hypnotist. Like, what do you know? It's Barney. Dr. Najib. Mr. Greenway. starts, I was uh, 12 years old, I was in the seventh grade, and I was coming home from what seemed like an ordinary day of middle school. I walked into my house, and my mom was sitting there. Uh, she looked like she always did. She was always like fully made up with red lipstick and fake eyelashes, even though it was just her waiting for me to come home from school. She had like the 80s bangs with like the 90s perm, but it was... <laughs> the early 2000s, so, so her head was like three times the size it was supposed to be. And um, she was in her late 20s. She had just started dating this guy. His name was Matt. And I thought, Matt was the coolest. He was a professional bull rider. Not kidding. And uh, he looked like a cowboy. He wore like a Stetson cowboy hat. He had like sandy blonde hair. He wore the boots. He had these like tree trunk sized thighs that he like squeezed wranglers around like think tim mcgraw but with acne like he was cool <laughs> he was really really cool and um so i had met him one time and they come into my house my mom's holding the two things that she's always holding still to this day she's got like a can of dr pepper in this hand and a marble light in this hand and she's like sit down we need to talk so i sit down and she starts to tell me she says devin baby and i hated when she called me that i hated that all growing up, and she says, Devin, baby, this coolest thing has happened. Matt has asked us to come on his bull riding tour with him, and I'm thinking about taking you out of school to homeschool you. How do you feel about this? And I was like, fuck yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so I'm all on board, and then she throws this out. She's like, well, actually, we're leaving tomorrow. And so I'm like thinking this is the coolest thing that ever happened to me. I'm like a small town girl from nowhere in North Carolina. And I'm in my room and I'm packing my favorite pink book bag and my favorite pink suitcase that matches. And the next day, we're literally in my mom's silver Corolla and we are like ready to go. And we're on the road and it's like Matt's driving, my mom's in the passenger seat, I'm in the back, and we're on this grand adventure on this road trip. My mom's idea of homeschooling was like me sitting in the back seat reading books, which I was into. And she also did this really fun thing where she like, she had this camcorder, the kind that like had the little VHS tape that like you put into a big VHS tape and then it plays on a TV. <laughs> it was a great idea. But um, so she had one of those and she was always filming us all the time. And we would do like, monologues or we would read like recreate our favorite tv shows or she would let me read you know from my books or we'd do diaries and we were always filming so we'd stop and we'd film at like 
you know, whenever we stopped for like gas stations or Walmarts or whatever, and like this was really fun for me, um, so I was really into it. And, I, and some of the things we were supposed to do on the trip, we were supposed to like, we are supposed to end up in Texas where the rodeo was supposed to start, right? And we were supposed to see some like national parks and stop in Oklahoma to be my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother, I had heard, I had never met her, but I had heard she was like this eccentric collector lady. So like our first leg of the trip, we're like driving there and we're outside of Oklahoma City and we pull up to this like gate in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, and it's like grown over and it's like rusted and it looks like no one's ever opened it and there's trees behind it and surrounding it, there's like statues and like suits of armor and like old appliances and I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And so we go, we pull up at my grandmother's house and she's standing outside and she's like pushing 95 and her boyfriend Frank is like pushing 55 and he's standing there and we get out of the car and we meet them and they're nice whatever yeah you know they like live in this shack and they show us their house and she she was a hoarder i didn't have a word for that yet but like she had like shit from like floor to ceiling and i was like cool collector <laughs> that makes sense and um we have dinner with them and then later that night my mom pulled me outside and she's like uh, hey, some like some like adult stuff is going on, and Matt and I are gonna need to leave you here for a little while. Uh, is that cool? <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> uh, but anyways, whatever happens, she ends up leaving to do her adult things, and I'm I'm gonna like hold down the fort, right? And I'm there, and the first day I'm there, like Frank, the boyfriend, we're sitting at the table, and the thing I remember most about him, he had like three, maybe three and a half fingers and like whenever he would talk he would like point them at you and uh, we're sitting at the table and he pulls out this like box of dominoes he's like young lady you ever played dominoes I'm like yes sir and he's like what kind of fucking parents don't teach their kids how to play dominoes (laughs) and so he teaches me how to play dominoes and I'm having a blast and then like he pulls out this jug and he pours this stuff that I think is wine and he catches me looking at it and he's like, young lady, do you know what brandy is? I'm like, no, sir. What kind of parents don't teach their fucking kids what brandy is? He pours me a glass and then he pours me another and all of a sudden I'm drunk and I'm having a blast, you guys. I'm playing dominoes and I'm, this guy's like... (laughs) And it's so fun. And then like... That happens, and then a couple days later, they had a car, which I didn't realize how ridiculous it was at the time, but they had a Model T truck. And I had never driven a car, but this was the first car I ever drove. And they let me drive it around. This is like my great-grandmother, who's like decrepit. I'm like driving around this Model T. It's like very Dust Bowl, (laughs) Oklahoma. You know, I'm feeling really cool. And some time passes by, and uh, finally one day, it's like a couple, like a week later, I hear that silver Corolla pulling back in the driveway. And I'm so excited. I'm sitting outside. I'm like, I'm going to tell my mom about all this cool shit I've been doing. Like, I'm cool. She pulls up, and I can tell before she even gets out of the car that something is really wrong. She gets out of the car, and I can tell she's crying. And Matt gets out of the car, and he's kind of like shuffling his feet, and he's silent. And my mom comes up to me, and she says, get your fucking shit and get in the car right now. 
And I'm not used to her talking to me like this, so I'm really scared. So I run inside and I get my stuff. And we don't really say goodbye to my family that I had just met and bonded with. And we just jump in this car and we drive away and we drive through the day and we drive through the night. And I'm asking my mom, I'm like, what is going on? And the silence is so heavy. Like the, the air in the car is heavy. The tension between them is heavy. And I have no idea what's going on. And finally, it's the middle of the night, we pull into this motel. And I'm so mad at this point that I'm giving, I'm giving them the silent treatment. And I get in the bed and I fall asleep. And in the middle of the night, there's this bang, bang, bang. It's the police, open the door. And the door gets kicked in. And there's this SWAT team. And they're armed and they're dressed. And I'm laying in this bed and I'm frozen. I'm not screaming, I'm not crying, I'm not even thinking. And this guy comes over and he scoops me up. And all I can do is like wrap my arms around his neck and hold on. And I'm just like listening to these guys yell at my mom and Matt to get on the ground. And he takes me to this police car and he puts me in the back and he tells me to be patient and he shuts the door. And whenever the door shuts, there's this, I just like come out of this shock and I start crying and screaming and asking for my mom and asking what I've done wrong and I'm alone in this car and I'm more scared than I've ever been in my life. I don't know how long I was in that cop car but eventually the same cop comes back and he tells me that he's gonna take me to the station. So we drive to this police station in the middle of Oklahoma and he puts me in this room that's like white with a table and chair and I didn't know it then but I've later been arrested and I know now that I was in a holding room. <laughs> at the time I didn't know so I was sitting there and the guy starts asking me questions and he's like pitying me like I need help like I'm helpless like I'm something that can't be on their own that he's very sorry for me and he's asking me questions like how old are you and I'm like 12 and he's like what grade are you in seventh where are you from North Carolina who are you traveling with my mom and her boyfriend Matt and he eventually gives me this Nutrigrain bar. I don't know why I remember it, but I remember looking at it and it was like so plastic and red and gross. And I was like looking at it and I was feeling like everything in that room was like plastic and fake and red and gross. And eventually my mom comes back in the room. I run over to her and I hug her. And all that she's saying is, Devin baby, Devin baby, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. While she's saying this, she's grabbing my hand in that way that like only moms and their daughters understand, she's like, shut the fuck up and don't say another word, kind of grab on my hand. And I internalized it and I just shut my mouth and I shut down and I'm sitting there. And I start to figure out that we're wanted in every state from North Carolina to Oklahoma for armed robbery of Walmarts and gas stations. And I'm hearing my mom say things like, I thought his name was Matt. I thought he was a professional bull rider. I didn't know he was 18, which explains the acne. <laughs> um, you know, whatever. But, and then she's all, she goes on to say, um, I can prove I didn't know because we took these videos the whole time on this trip. And I'm looking at my mom and I'm listening to her and I just know that she's lying and that she's not telling the full truth and my respect for her is melting and I'm losing my role model like right in front of my face. 
And <clears throat> eventually the cops decide that she's not guilty, but uh, they're going to confiscate her car, they're going to take all the money we have, and they're going to let us go. And we walk outside of this police station, and I have my stupid fucking pink book bag and my stupid fucking matching pink suitcase. I'm thinking that we're going to get picked up by family, but instead we walk to a bus station, and we get on a bus. I don't remember it very well, but we stayed at a woman's shelter. I, I think that's what it must have been for some amount of time. And then she got a job at this ranch, and we lived there. But it was like room and board situation. I don't know what she was going through, but I was having a blast. I was like riding horses and like meeting cute 12-year-old girls, which I didn't realize at the time was a thing. And like I was having a blast. And um, <laughs> she makes enough money to get us back to North Carolina, and we moved back in with my grandfather. And I think, you know, my mom expected me to like start back the eighth grade and be this kid that I was. But like every time I asked her about this situation, she like acted like it never happened. And still to this day, we've never spoken about it. And something happened. I wasn't that same kid. I never wanted to be looked at like that cop had looked at me. I needed to be independent and I needed to be a woman and I need to be grown. And I was different, but I do think that uh, however traumatic and dramatic and ridiculous the situation was, I think it's pretty cool to say that at some point in my life I was this like renegade cowgirl getaway driver and I got away with it. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening to my story. I cannot remember anything you say when the streets are talking. Yeah, they call my name. And I walk a little further. I could go all day. And the trees are reaching, pointing out the way. I go. This is Risk. This is Middle Kids behind me now. And we just heard from Devin McNichol in Carborough, North Carolina. Before that, a little interstitial prepared by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. It was a bunch of the moments of unmasking the villain in Scooby-Doo episodes. I feel like the New York Times and the Washington Post and other places like that are doing that sort of thing on a daily basis nowadays. Yanking masks off all over the place saying, holy shit, zoinks, this guy's as much of an asshole as you suspected. Speaking of assholes, what are you putting up yours? Because if you go to adamandeve.com right now, you'll get 50% off just about any item, including all kinds of wonderful little prostate massager sorts of things. Some are glass, some are, are, are steel, some are, you know, rubbery kind of silicone kind of things. Adam and Eve is the largest 
provider of sex toys out there. They've been around for 40 years, so they have just an enormous, enormous selection from very high-quality stuff to extremely affordable stuff. When you do go to adamandeve.com, you get 50% off just about any item, like I said, but you also get a free sex swing and free shipping. You just enter the code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com, 50% off any item, a free sex swing, free shipping on your entire order, and the offer code is RISK. Now, our final story on today's episode comes to us from a beloved figure in the comedy and storytelling scene, DC Benny, who co-hosts the wonderful storytelling podcast called Tall But True, and who you can find at dcbenny.com. This story is one of those stories that might be a little uncomfortable for folks who had had negative sexual sorts of experiences in their childhood. But DC shared it at the Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn with his usual warmth and candor. So here he is now, DC Benny, with a story we call The Bomb Pop. I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, went to D.C. public schools, the only school system with White History Month. Uh, you know, I was the only white kid in my class with a school player was the snowstorm. Um, I grew up in a shitty neighborhood, in a very shitty neighborhood, and then my parents uh, moved out of that neighborhood into uh, sort of a middle-class suburb, but we had no money. We were on you know, welfare and the food stamps and all that shit. But the other kids, you know, they went to camp and stuff like that. People went to camp. That was a foreign concept for me. You know, I went to fucking Rock Creek Park and you look for crayfish and then you rob shit and that's what you did. <laughs> so around fifth, sixth grade, one of the, you wanted a job. You wanted a job, you could get some tennis shoes, you know, look a little fly with the fucking tennis shoes, you know meet a girl, possibly. In my neighborhood, there was the ice cream man. The ice cream man used to come around, his name was Mike. He used to come around the neighborhood, hear the thing, and the ice cream man would be out there, and it was a status thing. It was a status thing to be a kid on the ice cream man's truck, because the ice cream man, every once in a while, he would bring a kid on the truck with him, and people were like, oh shit, how did Joe get with the ice cream man? You know, <laughs> how did Joe get with the ice cream man? That was a, it was a good job. I mean, Joe would be like, you know, hey, we fucking you want a nutty buddy? And what do you want? Do you want a nutty buddy? You want a, you want a bomb pop? What do you want? So ice cream man would come around. It was a big deal to get with the ice cream man. You know, it was like, you know, you're like your maid, you know, in the neighborhood. So when I went out there, and it was a kid, Joe, who was always on the truck. I always looked kind of sullen. You know, I don't know why. I'm like, you got the gig with the ice cream man. What are you looking at selling for? Ice cream man sees me. He's like, hey, I used to get nutty buddies. That was my thing, nutty buddies. To this day, I love a nutty buddy. You know, it's a cone and then a, a varietal of ice cream with some chocolate shit and some peanuts uh, and a nutty buddy. So the ice cream man used to call me nutty buddy. He's like, hey, nutty buddy, what's up, man? 
I was like, what's up? Hey, Mike. And he's like, you want to come on the truck sometime? You want to come? I was like, yeah, I want to come on the truck. You kidding me? Ice Cream Man's like, next Tuesday, boom, you're on the truck. So I'm like, boom. Mike, the ice cream man, I'm on the truck with him. It's great. I get on next Tuesday, and this truck, you can't believe this. I'm in sixth grade. You can't believe this. Mike's like, all right, here's the rules on the truck. You got to wear shorts because it's the summer. You got to sell the fucking ice cream. You can't be coming on with pants, with pleats and stuff like that. You got to shorts. And he's like, we're on the truck. He's like, you smoke? And I was like, no. He's like, you do now, right? So he breaks out a pack of Marlboro Lights. I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in sixth grade. He's like, hit one of these things. I'm like, I'm smoking Marlboro Lights. He's like, you like naked chicks? I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> he breaks out Playboys. He's got Playboys on ice cream truck. I'm smoking Marlboro Lights. He's like, you like beer? I'm like, yeah. He's got Pabst Blue Ribbon in a little cup holder on ice cream truck. So I'm like, this is the fucking best shit ever. I'm on ice cream truck. I'm drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon. I'm smoking Marlboro Lights. I'm looking at titties. Life doesn't get better than this, right? So Mike had a picture of his ex-wife on the truck. And when you got on, Mike was a little misogynistic. You know, he'd be like, that fucking bitch, my ex-wife. And you'd have to, if you had gum, you had to put it on the picture of the ex-wife, right? And it was just hanging there, all these like, all these gum nuggets on the ex-wife, right? It's the most bizarre. Okay, anyway. But I'm in sixth grade. I don't know. I'm like, I'll put fucking bubblicious on that, that ex-wife, you know? She's a bitch. Mike's just cool. Mike's cool, right? So on the truck, we're driving around, and then other kids in the neighborhood, she's like, oh, fuck, man, you're on the truck with Mike? Like, what do you want? You want, a, you want an ice cream sandwich? What do you want? You know, I got you, you know? The thing about it, but then it started getting a little weird. Start getting a little weird because the motor, I don't know, mechanically, it protruded a little bit into the truck. There was no seat. There was Mike's seat, but there was no seat for the employee. So you had to sit above the motor. So Mike would always be like, you got to sit above the motor. It's protruding a little bit. Watch out. It gets hot. So you got to keep your legs open a little bit. You know, no big deal. (laughs) And uh, we're driving along. I'm like, damn I don't know, is it, maybe it's me, but it, it feels like Mike keeps looking at my balls, right? <laughs> Mike, Mike keeps looking at my balls. I mean, my legs are open. They're like, nah, nah, it's fucking Mike. It's Mike, the ice cream man. We get, we get the Playboys on the truck. He loves titties. I love titties. <sighs> Can't be. So we're, uh, you know, we're going along, and Mike insists that you sit in this position. He's like, I don't want you to burn your leg because the truck, uh, the protrusion of the motor gets kind of hot. I don't want you to burn your leg. You know, it's not like I don't want to burn my leg. Mike's looking out for me. I got the shorts on. He's not looking at my balls. <clears throat> so we're, you know, it, it's going on and on and on. And uh, Mike and I start getting kind of close. He tells me in his family, there's a tradition. He's like, are you, you still a virgin? I'm like, oh, I'm sixth grade. Maybe not. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. And he's like, in my family, there's a tradition where you, you hit 13 and we get you a prostitute and you lose your virginity. And he's like, what do you think about that? I'm like, I think that's great. You know, I think that's a fine tradition. And he's like, because we could, I, he's like, I might do that for you. He's like, you sell enough ice cream, I might do that for you. I'm like, this guy's fucking awesome. <laughs> you know, this is uh, amazing. 
And he's like, yeah, yeah, we could work that out. Someone on the truck, I'm working. And Sue Mike is not, none of the other kids are on the truck. It's just me and Mike. Everybody's like, how'd you get this job? It's great. Smoking Marlboro Lights. I'm drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon. I'm reading Playboys. Fourth of July comes around. Mike's like, look, this other kid, Joe, that was supposed to work with me Fourth of July on the mall, this is Washington, D.C. He's like, this kid called in sick or something. He's like, you want to work with me? He's like, here's the thing. You got to spend the night because, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I got to park the truck in a lot. I got to get my car. I got to drive back to the place. So you got to spend the night. It's going to be a late night. He's like, can you do it? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you got to ask my dad and everything. So Mike comes over. He meets my dad and, and my mom and my, and my, and they, he you know, hangs out and I'm like, dude, Mike's cool. I'll spend the nights like a sleepover and everything. Boom, boom, boom. We are work. I make a little money. You know, I can buy some tennis shoes. So I remember my dad comes out and he's, he pulls me around the corner. He's like, listen, he's like, I don't know, but he's like, are you sure this guy is cool? This guy, Mike, I mean, hangs out with a lot of, you know, children. You sure he's cool and everything? I'm like, yeah, it's fucking Mike. It's ice cream man and everything. So, all right, you sure? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I trust your instincts. So, 4th of July comes. Mike and I, we take the ice cream truck to the mall, which is like, you know, downtown Washington, D.C. with the fireworks and everything. I see kids I know from school. I see this one girl I have a crush on. I get to give her a free ice cream sandwich. I'm like, it's on the house. Uh, the power, the power is unbelievable. I can't, to this day, to this day, I've never experienced anything like that. It's amazing, right? We're there all night. Mike's like, we sold out of fucking ice cream sandwiches. We never sell out of ice cream sandwiches, nutty buddy. You know, I'm like, <laughs> so we wrap up and uh, we drive the ice cream truck out to some, a lot in Upper Marlboro, Maryland that's got like a chain link fence and all this shit around it. We park it, we get into Mike's old Cutlass, which smells like, you know, cigarettes and failure. And uh, we drive out, and, and I'm lost. I mean, I have no idea where I am. I'm in sixth grade, right? We drive out to this house, which is some kind of group house in the middle of Maryland somewhere, right? And we get there, and I see this lady in a rocking chair in a fucking house dress outside smoking a cigarette. And she's like, we, walk, we pull up and she's like, you're four months uh, late with the rent, Rob. And I'm like, Rob? <laughs> and he's like, don't worry, I got it under control. Here's some cash for an hour or whatever. And I'm like, Rob? She's like, you're four months late. And she's like, what's another one of your little fucking helpers or whatever? So we could walk in and I'm like, uh, hey, Mike, why'd she call you Rob? He's like, I don't know. She just doesn't know my name. She's fucking crazy. Yeah. So we get to his room which is where we're staying. And he's like, all right. So he's like, this is army style. <laughs> it's, this is July, 4th of July. There's no air conditioning. It's hot as fuck in this room. And I'm like, where am I sleeping? He's like, it's army style. You're sleeping on the bed. We're bunking together, army style, right? And I'm like, uh, army? What, you know, what army is that? Uh, <laughs> the, the, the recruits, uh, you know, bunk together. And he's like, it's you know, like the foreign legion. So, uh... <laughs> There's no couch or anything else to sleep on. So he's like, in the army, people sleep in their underwear because it's hot and stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, all right, all right. So now I'm a little scared. I'm a little bit scared because I'm in the middle of Upper Marlboro, Maryland. 
middle of fucking nowhere in this house with a dude who said his name was Mike, but his name may be Rob, in this bed in my underwear. So I'm laying there in my underwear. The lights are off, and I'm, I can't sleep. I mean, I'm a little, I'm, I'm fucking, I'm in sixth grade, you know? And he's like, dude, you can't sleep? He's like, how about a massage, right? Like, right, uh, I know, I know, I really did say it. And so I'm like, yeah, uh, what do you mean a massage? He's like, a massage, it'll get you to sleep. So he starts rubbing my neck. He's like, just take this T-shirt off. It gets in the way of the massage and everything. He's like, hey, you know, he's like, he's like, I'm not gay, you're not gay. We read the Playboys, you know, we fucking smoke Marlboro Lights. Boom, you know? So I'm getting this massage, and uh, it's a little strange. And then his hand kind of snakes down to under the, un- like the, the elastic of the underwear. And I'm like, all right, this massage is good right now. We're good. Uh, that's, I think, enough massage. I'm feeling really fucking tired. I think I can go to bed now. So I go to sleep, and I wake up in the middle of the night. And Mike's hand was on my junk, and it was holding it like it was, he was smoking a Marlboro Light. I remember that. And so I kind of gingerly remove the hand and turn the other way. And Mike pretends to be asleep. He's like, oh, and then turns like, you know, Go to sleep. I wake up the next morning. I, well, I didn't even go to sleep after that. I was up all fucking night, like, you know, watching for the hands. The next morning, I woke up. He's like, how about some IHOP? We'll go get some pancakes. You're going to love fucking pancakes, man. man. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of good. No, let's get some pancakes. So we go get some pancakes. I just want to get the fuck out of there. I'm so terrified. I'm so fucking terrified. We get back. He drops me off at my dad's. My dad was like, how is everything? And I, I was afraid to tell him what had happened because I felt like I invited this guy. I'm like, you know, I've been sitting up there with my legs open and (laughs) my balls hanging out and this dude's looking at it. And you know, it's my fault. All this shit happened. So I went on a little crime spree. Uh, I had a, 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 a crime spree after that. That it was one thing after another. There was some petty larceny. Uh, there was a variety of things that happened after that. And I got sent away. Uh, my parents couldn't take it anymore. And I got sent away to Indiana to a, uh, it was kind of like a, I don't know how to explain. It was a farm that you work on. You stay on this farm and you do work. So I'm staying on this farm with this other guy, Cody. <laughs> And uh, what you would do is you stay on the farm and then you go into Bloomington, Indiana during the day and you would do demolition and you do construction and stuff like that. But this guy, Cody, was like one of those dudes that you know is going to be a fucking career criminal. Like, you know what I mean? He's just going to end up in jail at some point. This kid could blow anything up. Like on our day off, we would blow shit up. That was our thing. He's like, come on, man, we'll show you how to make a fucking bomb out of fertilizer and batteries. Let's go. And then then we would go... (laughs) blow shit up, right? And I love this kid, man. We'd make Molotov cocktails, blow up a fucking barn. I'm like, Indiana is awesome, you know? (laughs) So I'm hanging out with this guy. You're shooting at rattlesnakes. It was just like some crazy. So I get back after, uh, I think it was two months in that facility thing. And I get back and completely unrehabilitated. And... uh, But I have this thing in my mind. I have this thing in my mind of Mike, you know? Like Mike doing his shit to me. And uh, I'm really uh, really bugged about it. I'm really, like, it's in my head. Like, I'm like, I gotta get payback, you know? Meanwhile, he's still in the neighborhood, and he's got another kid in the truck. 
I mean, I, I see the ice cream truck come around. He's got this other kid in the truck. So one night, what I was doing to make money at the time is I'd go down to Chinatown, buy throwing stars, and then I'd sell them to other kids for like, you know, three times the markup. Um, <laughs> so it was this one kid who had a car. And I was like, look, I got these fucking throwing stars, man. And I need you to follow this ice cream truck and, you know, just like hang out or whatever. So I give him these throwing stars. I make these Molotov cocktails and I make, I, I try to make this bomb thing that Cody showed me how to make. You get the batteries, you get the fertilizer or whatever. I put all that shit together. So I got a fucking arsenal. And I load it, and, you, and the whole car smells like gas. We get, and he's like, what the fuck is that? I'm like, dude, don't worry about it. It's all good, you know. It's my cologne, you know. <laughs> it's Jovan Musk. So we follow the ice cream truck to Upper Marlboro, Maryland, right? The dude, Mike parks it. He leaves. He leaves the truck in the lot. I tell the guy, I'm like, look, uh, I, I got to go take care of some stuff. He's like, we're throwing stars. I'm going to get it after I do the fucking uh, stuff. I got the throwing stars. I'm like, look at that. That's a five-pointed one. Shit is bad. You can throw it, and it'll be nice. It's got Chinese letters on it. And uh, <laughs> so we waited, right? So we waited, right? I went out there. I put the little bomb thing I made right under the truck, and I fucking like, tried to detonate it. And I went back, and it didn't go off, right? It didn't go off. I'm like, fuck. So I'm like, boom, I got the Molotov cocktails, right? I lit those shits. I threw them at the truck, right? The thing started to light on fire. It's not like the movies where it's like, when Will Smith jumps out and, you know, whatever. It was like kind of slow. And then those shits hit whatever the fertilizer battery thing was, and the thing just fucking went. It went. The tires popped. The picture of the ex-wife all melted with the gum on it. You know, all the Playboys caught on fire. Pat's blue ribbon exploded. It was a fucking great moment, man. And I just watched that shit burn. And then I went back to the dude. I gave him the throwing stars. We cruised back. And then about a week later, <laughs> no, it was about a month later. I didn't see the ice cream truck. It was the end of August. I didn't, I didn't see the ice cream truck come around. <laughs> about a month later... Another ice cream truck comes around, and uh, Mike's driving it, and I, I <laughs> and it's like a brand new ice cream truck, and I walk up, and the other kids are around, and Mike is parked, and he's like, you know, <sighs> he doesn't look good, right? He doesn't look good. He's like fucking his eyes twitching, and he doesn't, you know, and he sees me, and I'm like, hey man, he's like, hey, nutty buddy. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I guess you want a nutty buddy. And I was like, no, I think, I think I'm going to get a bomb pop uh, today. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he fucking knew, man. He knew. And that's the end of that story, and I hope you enjoyed it.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Edward R. behind me now, and I am going to list where Risk is appearing next. On June 9th, we're in Portland, Oregon. On June 10th, we're in Seattle, Washington. On June 11th, we're in Vancouver. So, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, we will be in your towns very, very soon. June 9th for Portland, June 10th for Seattle, June 11th for Vancouver. You can find out more at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, on June 17th, we'll be back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And on June 28th, we'll be back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We will be back in the big room, in the showroom at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Thank you so much to the audience that came out. This month, we had a little bit of a snafu and had to be in the bar instead. But on June 28th, we'll be back in the big room at the Bell House. On July 1st, on July 1st, we will be in North Adams, Massachusetts at the Mass Mocha. And we're still taking pitches for that one. The theme is revolting. So if you live anywhere near North Adams, Massachusetts, pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. On July 8th, we'll be in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. The theme that night is one of a kind. On July 15th, we'll be in Philadelphia at the World Cafe Live. The theme that night is Revelation. We're still taking pitches for the July 8th D.C. show and the July 15th Philly show. So pitch us, folks. And on September 9th, we will be back in Salt Lake City, Utah at the Urban Lounge. The theme that night is Unexpected. September 9th, Salt Lake City, Utah. The theme is Unexpected. You can pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Don't forget that we teach storytelling as well. We do one-on-one coaching over Skype. We do in-person workshops in New York, in Minneapolis, and in Los Angeles. We do video workshops that you can take in your own time, download classes, you know, at your leisure. And we do corporate workshops for staffs of businesses. That's all at thestorystudio.org. Make sure to follow Risk on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And you can comment on all of our material on iTunes in the comments section for podcasts on iTunes or on the table of contents, the pages that we call the listen pages at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Speaking of assholes, what are you putting up yours? Like what? My favorite. Ah, meddling kids.